0: Okay, we're going to go into Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verses 12 through 18. And here's the challenge. We're going to look at this, and what's been permeating in my heart and this vision that as I've studied this passage and prayed through it and prayed for you through it, the question that's coming up is why do we obey? And what vision, and I think you need a vision that drives your obedience. There needs to be a vision that really drives our obedience. Because, see, there are times, and really, every time it is obedience, obedience is tough. There are a lot of commandments in Scripture I don't have to obey. Do not murder, hadn't been a problem. Do not commit adultery, not an issue. Now, lusting in the heart, that's, that's a bit of an issue. Hatred in the heart, that's a bit of an issue. But there's a lot of commands. I don't obey, I agree with. And they haven't been a conflict. Obedience happens when there's a conflict. Obedience only happens when what God says and what I want are in conflict with each other. And I submit and to surrender to that which is greater. That what is greater than my desire right now is God. What is greater than what I want right now is the glory of God. And what is greater is what God wants to do through me than simply what I want to get for myself. What is the vision that drives your obedience? Because as we go to this text today, Paul is in a very difficult place. He's in prison. He's been in prison for a while. He's been moved from Philippi all the way to Rome. He's essentially locked 24-7 to a Roman guard. Everything he loves has been taken from him. His church, his friends, his family, his money, his music, whatever he liked, whatever brought Paul joy football, college football, professional, whatever it was, it's, it's, it's gone. And yet, in the passage, you find joy. And I'd suggest you find a joyful obedience. A joyful obedience that if, if you get into the mind of Paul and what he believed, it makes sense. From the, but from the outside, it looks like lunacy. A joyful obedience that if you understand what Paul believed and what Paul understood to be true, it makes sense. His obedience is actually in line with his belief, but on the outside, when you look at his joyful obedience and what he's getting from it, it doesn't make sense. That Paul had a vision that drove his obedience. And I want to suggest the reason we fail to obey is we do not have the same vision. Here's a name for you, Alan Turing. Do you know the name? Alan Turing. The Imitation Game, 2014, great movie. The Imitation Game took the story of Alan Turing and made it into a movie with Benedict Cumberbatch. Strange name, but anyways, I like that. Benedict Cumberbatch. But anyways, in the story about Alan Turing is he had a vision, didn't he? He had a vision of a machine that could essentially turn the ties of World War II and win the war for the allies. And it was a machine that would decode the enigma. And that word enigma just sounds, it sounds, it sounds rough. But anyways, the Germans had this enigma machine that would encrypt these messages. And though they would hear these messages going out, they didn't understand what the messages said. Because they couldn't encrypt, they couldn't decrypt or whatever it is, crypt. I don't know how that works. Those messages back into English... And so Alan Turing had this vision of a machine that could do it, but here's the truth. Nobody believed him. Now, according to history, they did. Unfortunately, movies take liberties, and I had to go online and find out the truth, so I had to be honest anyways. In, in real life, it wasn't the same, but in the movie, you discover that many people were against him. And he had this vision, and he had to overcome many obstacles, people doubting him not having the resources, people shutting down his machine, even breaking his machine. What enabled him to overcome those obstacles? What enabled him to suffer, it was a vision. A vision of lives being saved and the war being turned. That's what, There was something greater at work in his heart than simply just the day-to-day following through that enabled him to overcome. And I want to suggest Paul has a greater vision that he wants to impart to us, that when we walk into those moments, those experiences where obedience doesn't benefit us, where obedience doesn't make sense, where obedience actually may bring more pain into your life, you can respond in those moments with joyful obedience that comes straight from the heart of God through this vision that God wants to impart to us. Hey, a real small task today, right? That's all we're doing. That's all we're going to do. But let's jump into it, if you will, Verses 12 to 18. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine like stars, like lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ it may be I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice, sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Let me ask for his help. Father, as we come to this passage, we come to that which is living and active. It is not dead and in the past, but it is in the present. For you are not the God of the dead, but you're the God of the living, the God who has resurrected Jesus from the dead, who is seated at the right hand of the Father and who is coming back in power. And yet, Father, we're just stuck on Sunday morning. We're not awake in our heart, in our mind, in our spirit, in our volition to the truth of your glory and the display of your majesty. And so, Father, open the eyes to see. Open our ears to hear. Lord, this morning as we're gathered in your presence, you're with us, and so you can teach us, and not just in teaching us, you can transform us from one degree of glory to another as we behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Christ Jesus. Father, show us your glory, show us your truth, and in that, Lord, Enable us to respond with humble, joyful obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Life is a struggle. Chapter 1 of Philippians says, life is a struggle. Here's a guy like Paul preaching the gospel. He's arrested, thrown into prison, and not only that, his some of the people within, his, within his, his own church are making life more difficult. You know, he says, and I think it's in 14, you know, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me, I know it looks bad, but it's really served to advance the gospel. Hey, what's happening to me? I know it's harsh. I know the beatings I've taken. I know my imprisonment. I know the fact that my life may end in execution. It looks horrendous but know that God is not asleep, he's not dead, he is alive, and he is using my suffering in a way to glorify him in ways I could not imagine. Now the problem was there were some within the church that were going out and preaching Christ, not because they love God, but simply to make Paul's life more miserable. You got people like that just love to make you miserable, but they did it in Jesus' name. That's That's miserable. <laughs> You know, they did it, and I'm not exactly sure what the situation is, but they were trying to create more stress, more difficulty in Paul's life. And Paul went to this point. He said, you know, it doesn't matter. The motives of those people, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is to live is Christ. To die is to gain Christ. There's one thing that matters in my life. That is being with Christ and allowing God to use me for the glory of Christ. That's a beautiful picture. But then he says, You know the trouble that I'm experiencing? It's coming to a theater near you. This is the preview of your life. At the end of chapter one, he says something like, uh, we're, we're chosen not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're, you're hearing that you're get, going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. He's saying the struggle that I'm having is something that's coming to you. But no, when we believe in him, we also suffer for him. And in part, I think that suffering happens when we obey. Isn't that a great challenge to obey? We are called not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for What does that mean? That when we obey, often it leads us to a place of tension with the world. I think tension with others. Tension, if I can be honest, with myself. Obedience often leads to greater stress in some ways because we're swimming against the tide. We're pushing against the stream of life. We're moving light into the darkness, and the darkness does not want to understand it. Obedience reveals a vision of God and us and life that's really contrary to the ways of the world. Life is... Difficult, and so he says in verse 12, therefore, I know, isn't that amazing? Therefore, what is he saying? Because of everything that I've just said, therefore, as you've always obeyed, let's jump back into it, as you've always obeyed, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore, obey. Now, why should I obey? Because Jesus Christ is God. If you listen to last week, he became a man. He didn't become just any man. He became a servant, and he obeyed. He obeyed to the point of death on a cross, and because he was obedient, and realize that obedience came in a dark moment. It was night. It was in the garden And in a sense, he was alone. For me, when it's night and I'm alone, that's when sin tends to happen, doesn't it? Nobody's watching. No eyes on you. There's opportunity to escape. Jesus is in the garden. His disciples are sleeping. And he says, Father, this isn't what I want. It's not the direction I want to go. But I'm going to surrender my will. I'm going to submit myself to your authority and to your empowering presence. Jesus was obedient. And because he was obedient, even when it was going to cost him, what did the Father do? He exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because that happened, because that day is coming, because our knee will bow, obey. He's saying if you believe this, the only rational response to that belief is obedience. And he kind of goes into it, not only in my presence, because often when dad is there, we obey. I know my father was an imposing presence. When my dad was home, I obeyed. But when did I disobey? When he was not watching. And he says, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. And here's the language he turns to, continue to work out your salvation. Continue to work out your salvation with God. With fear and trembling. See, what is obedience? I want to suggest obedience is working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I'm going to explain that, don't worry. That may not hit you well right now, but salvation, this idea of God's rescue, is something He's done in the past. We have been forgiven from the penalty of sin, but right now we are being set free from the power of sin. How? Through faith in the gospel, through faith in what God has done. Obedience is taking the truth of verses 5 through 11. So if you look back before verse 12, it's taking the truth of verses 5 through 11 and who God is and what Jesus did and that he was obedient and then he was exalted and it's working it out into every area of my life. Because right now the reason you disobey is the gospel's not worked out into every area of your life. And like Jesus in the garden, you're not submitting and surrendering yourself under God's authority and his empowering presence. Do you see that? When I disobey, it's not that I've stopped to intellectually believe, I've stopped spiritually surrendering. And there's something about the gospel and who Jesus is and what he's done that's not worked out in that moment, in that aspect of my life. Here's, Here's a way to think about it I don't bake, but I love bakers. I love the fruit of bakers. And if you've ever been in an industrial kitchen, you'll find these massive mixing machines. Because one of the things that baking requires, I think, is a lot of mixing. And probably if you're a professional baker, you probably don't use that kind of crude device. You know, you get in there with a wooden spoon. Because as I understand, baking is all about the right way of mixing. And that's why my baking, it's miserable, because I mix too much. You know, even my pancakes, that come out, you know, and it's miserable. Because if you, if you mix too much, the whole thing kind of falls apart. But when you add chocolate chips into a mixture, you want that mixture to have an equality of chips. Right? Because, you, you know, you don't want the guest to take the one cookie with no chips. No, you want... That mixture you want it to work itself out which means in every aspect of that mixture you want the truth to work itself out into your life that's simply what he's saying he's saying that you and God have a partnership now God began it remember chapter 1 he who began a good work in you and God's going to finish it is faithful to complete it so listen it's not an equal partnership but there is a partnership And God wants you to work out what he has worked in. He's not saying work for your salvation, because you can't work something out that you don't have. We agree with that? Salvation is a gift of God's grace. It is not something we work for. But grace is not against working. It's against earning. Grace is against earning. It's not... Against working. And we have to work out into our lives, into our marriage, into our finance, into our thought life, into our driving life, into our politics, the truth of the gospel. To such a point that in those moments of conflict, we are submitting and surrendering to God's authority and His empowering presence. Now, what does that look like? A couple stories. And they're biblical stories. In Galatians chapter 2, and I thought about this actually last night I was I was in bed. It's like when the spirit moves and keeps you up. Galatians chapter 2, there's a story about Peter and Paul. And it's a story about eating food. It's a story about dinner or, or lunch. And, and Peter came to Paul. He came to, I think he was coming to Galatia. And see, Peter grew up as a faithful Jew as Paul did. And you didn't eat with Gentiles. Now, the reason you didn't eat with Gentiles is Gentiles could make you unclean. They didn't wash their hands. They didn't follow the rituals and the purity. And, and when you're unclean, you had to purify yourself to then worship the Father, to come into his presence. And so there was this idea that I have to cleanse myself. I've got I've to wash myself before I come to God, And so I will just stay away from those who are unclean. Well, in Jesus, Jesus makes everything clean. See, Jesus is the one that forgives us, that cleanses us, and so faith in Jesus wipes away the the symbol of those laws because Jesus fulfills them. But that's hard. When, When you've been told your entire life it's wrong to eat pork and suddenly you see bacon, I mean, the desire's there. But have you ever eaten something you thought was not edible? Even though you know it's healthy, but you looked at it and just something inside was like, uh, you know, you know what I mean? For me it was it was meat jello. Right. Russians eat meat jello. And it sounds as bad as it, it sounds. It just it's coagulated jello with meat particles. Uh. Okay, I know it wasn't going to kill me. But everything in me said, this is wrong. (laughs) That's Peter. Peter is sitting down with Gentiles, and he knows that Jesus has forgiven. Jesus is the reason we're accepted. But everything in him, he's looking at the guy next to him, he's just, this is wrong. What does Paul say to him? Galatians 2.14, we're not going to, I didn't give it to him, I didn't prepare them for that verse. But Galatians 2.14, he doesn't say, Peter, you're being a bigot, which is true you're being a racist. He's saying, Peter, you're not you're not working out the truth of the gospel. Much beautiful much more grace-filled way to approach it. What's he saying? You are denying verses 5 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2. Jesus is God, he became man, he became a servant, he died on a cross and God exalted him. Peter in this moment, you're denying the very foundation that you claim to believe. You need to submit and surrender yourself under the authority of God in his empowering presence. You need to repent and believe the gospel, not for eternal life, but for obedience. Do you see that? Working out your salvation is taking the truth of who God is and working it out in every area of life. That's why when you come into my office and you're struggling with something, I will ask you a question. It's the only question I got, really. That's why I went to seminary. Will you surrender this? Will you submit this problem, this question, under God's authority and his empowering presence? We have to start there. Otherwise, I got nothing for you. I may have some good tips and advice, but until you are humble and willing to surrender this problem, this issue, unwilling to say, God, I'm putting it under your authority and your empowering presence, there's nothing I can do. That's what he's taking. That's what obedience is. But why with fear and trembling, right? We don't like that. We're Americans. We don't fear. We stand, right? We fight. There's no fear and trembling. But he says, why with fear and trembling? Well, do you realize the things that are most important to, to you, you often have a bit of fear around? The things that are most important in your life. I mean, think about it. If you want to discover what's most important to you, just follow the tracks of your fears. <laughs> Not tears. I know. I <laughs> know. Follow your fears. Your fears often lead you back to what is most important to you. And listen to how the Bible really describes the fear of the Lord. And I think you'll find something unique. In Psalm 130, verse 4, we got this one, Stephen. Psalm 130, verse 4 says, But with you there is forgiveness. And what? That you may be feared. Now, that that seems a little bit off. I mean, I think I'd be afraid of God if there wasn't forgiveness, but with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. What he's saying is the more I realize I'm forgiven, the more I realize that I'm accepted, the more I realize that I'm loved by the God of the universe, I fear him. Because see, fear is about putting something central in your life. We think of it as abject terror and being scared. That's the, the Bible's nuance of fear is broad. And it's what you treasure. Another way of saying it, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does it mean to work out your salvation? It means to love him in every single area and aspect of life. Because what we fear in the end is going to determine how you obey. And until God becomes in your life greater than your fear of money... I can just turn it around, greater than your love of money, it's the same thing. You will not obey him when it comes to your money. Until, until the fear of God becomes greater than the approval of man, or might I say the fear of man, you will not obey God when it comes to aspects of your life. God's authority, his empowering presence has to be greater. Do you see that? Why does he say fear and trembling? When we're in fear and trembling of God, we're valuing God above all else. And see, that in the end is going to drive our obedience. The reason we disobey is because we do not in that moment recognize his authority and his presence in our life. So let's see that play out. Kind of set that up, but let's see that play out and and watch this. And I think it goes in a direction, I'll tell you this week, I was struggling with this, verse 14, because I thought this is kind of a minor issue, God. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Okay, work out your salvation where? In the areas of your grumbling. I would think he'd go a higher shelf on sin right there. That doesn't seem to be a big issue, does it? Grumbling, complaining... And then notice where that takes you. If you don't grumble and complain, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine like lights. Some say stars, some translations, in the world. That really seems out of balance. But here's what he's saying. When we complain and grumble, we deny the grace of God in our lives. And we put ourselves in the position of a judge you don't believe me, just talk to Jesus' younger brother, James. Because in James chapter 5, verse 9, it says, do not grumble against one another, brothers. Why? So that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. I thought he'd stand at the door for adultery, for murder. No, he's saying, What he's saying is when we grumble and complain, in in a sense, as Paul says, we are being twisted, because he says, in a twisted and depraved generation, what is a twisted and depraved generation? Well, it's a generation that's focused on itself. What's complaining? I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to be with you because you're a fool. You believe the wrong things, you think the wrong things, and frankly, you're making my life miserable. And I don't deserve the circumstances in my life. I deserve better. What is that saying? When we say I deserve better, on the one hand, we've forgotten the gospel. The truth is I deserve to be abandoned. I deserve to be cast out. The wages of sin is death. Let's not start talking, Jason, about what you deserve. Let's talk about what Jesus deserves. Let's talk about what Jesus deserves. He was obedient, and yet he was cast out. He was obedient, and yet he humbled himself. He was obedient, and yet he took my sin on the cross, and it was for the vision, the joy set before him that he endured it. Why? So that he could be the center, he could be the judge, he could be my God, and I could get off the throne and stop complaining. When you complain, it's an attitude on the inside that twists you and gives you a false narrative about who you are. And if the one thing social media has taught me, it gets worse. (laughs) I mean, come on, how many people have you blocked? No, no, okay, sorry. Right, because what happens when somebody starts grumbling, what do you see? It starts as a low murmur, doesn't it? It's like once a week, and then it's like twice a week, then it's like every day, and finally you're like, listen, buddy, i got to turn you off. I can't stand this. What it does is it begins to warp your vision of life until someone once told me, do not judge without compassion. God doesn't wish hell on anyone. Why would we? There is nobody that has done anything to us that deserves, in our sense, hell. When God says, I want none to perish, but all come to everlasting life. When we grumble, that's just the beginnings of that self-righteous judgment that puts us on the throne and literally wipes the rest of the world out. Because who are we to be? We are to be like lights. The language, and I can't get into it right now, the language of verses 14 and and following, it's all about the story of the Exodus. Remember the Exodus story, Israel leaving out of Egypt, being rescued by God, being taken into the wilderness, and it's in the wilderness that they simply have to trust. In this moment, am I going to trust God or am I going to trust myself? Am I gonna make myself the judge or am I gonna surrender myself to the merciful judgment of God who has not given me what I deserve but given me what I do not deserve, who has poured out grace into my life? What we see in verses 14 and following is is a vision because notice what he says, when we do not grumble, here's the direction of our life, that you may become blameless and innocent. To not grumble is to work out your salvation. When it comes to your frustrations, When it comes to those that bother you, that have hurt you, it's working out your salvation in the area of your relationships and your circumstances, that we might be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine like lights in the world. Here's the beautiful tension. When we obey and there's nothing to benefit us, but we do it simply for the glory of God, we shine like lights when no one is watching. Because where was Paul? He was in the darkness. No one was watching. He was chained to a Roman guard. And yet in that moment, in that moment of beautiful submission and worship to God, Paul has a vision of himself, in a sense, in the church, shining like lights in a dark universe that we think doesn't care, and yet God is being glorified simply because we're surrendering to his authority and we're surrendering to his empowering presence. And here's how he works the rest of that out. He says, holding fast to the word of life, which is Jesus. The word that brings life. So that on the day of Christ, when Christ returns, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Because see, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering, Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Notice where he ends when he's talking about obedience. With joy. Paul had a joyful obedience because there was a vision at work in his life that when he ran into conflict, whether it was internal conflict within his heart, temptation outside, a desire to judge and condemn... Instead of putting himself at the center, he changed the narrative. And you know what he did? He went back to verses 5 through 11. He reminded himself of who God is. He reminded himself of what Jesus had done. He reminded himself of how Jesus obeyed and the Father exalted him. And he said, if that's the truth of my life, I want that to shine in my life in this moment. And Father, I want to surrender to you. See, Paul had a vision for life that changed the way that he approached everything. Just quickly, there's a book called Loneliness. We've all experienced the emotion. We might as well read the book. And it's by a woman named Elizabeth Elliot. And understand, Elizabeth Elliot was widowed twice before the age of 40. She knew loneliness. And the subtitle, I think, is really meaningful, um, if I can find it. Loneliness, it can be a wilderness, it can be a pathway to God. I think all of us understand loneliness, but what does it look like to work out our salvation? See, on the one hand, in the book, and she talks about her loss, her difficulties, her husband lost his life preaching the gospel, the suffering she went through, the difficulties that she had to overcome, even the things the church had done to her to try to comfort her, but really it was cold comfort. She describes the process, on the one hand, of having to work out in obedience this this loneliness and difficulty, while on the other hand surrendering to God and knowing in the end it's only God that can work through this. And on the one hand, she said, and actually let me read this quote. She said, God is God, and because he is God, he is worthy of my trust and obedience. I will find rest nowhere but in his holy will that is unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. Because see, in her loneliness, she wanted to sin. And she said, I'm going to obey, which means I'm not gonna give power to my loneliness to allow me to obey in ways that disobey my my heavenly father. I'm not gonna fall into self-pity But instead, I'm going to look for opportunities in my loneliness to glorify God. Hey, that's the work of obedience. That's hard. And if you're in that space, I am not diminishing that. That's the work. Work out your salvation. And yet, for it is God who works in you. At the same time she's working at obedience, she's surrendering God. I can't do it. Lord, the loneliness is overwhelming me. You are greater than those things. Father, take it from me. She constantly prayed. She constantly lifted it up. She constantly brought it to the Father. She knew she was poor in spirit. She walked in step with the spirit. And as she worked out on the one hand her obedience, she surrendered and submitted every single moment. That loneliness crept in. She surrendered it to God's authority and his empowering presence and said, Father, I can't, but you can, so I will obey. What's obedience? Saying, Father, I can't, but you can, and you have. And as I surrender under your authority and empowering presence, Father, you can do through me what you're doing through me. I can obey. You see that process? And often, listen, it happens when no one's watching, but here's the truth. You know why complaining and grumbling is kind of the, barometer of spiritual health because that's when spiritual growth happens in the everyday moments of life it's not the mountaintops it's not the great moments obedience when it happens in the everyday moments that's when you know that your heart's starting to change that's when you know that God is getting a hold of you and the vision of what he's done is becoming more and more beautiful to your heart to your soul and then ultimately in our obedience do you see that Hey, I'm going to pray for us this morning. Let me say, if, if you want to share communion, you can come forward anytime during this service, receive that, and whatever the Lord is teaching you, just allow him to continue to minister. After the service, we're going to head out, and I want, if you want to stay in this room, there are those that want to pray for you. Uh, this is the day of salvation. If God has convicted you, don't, don't walk out and talk about the patriots. Sorry. It wasn't funny, I know. It wasn't funny. The Broncos, right, or whatever it is. Stay. Stay. Be still and know that he is God and that he is at work. And so in that spirit, let me just pray for us. And and then whatever the Lord wants you to do, let's, let's, let's obey him. Father, I just pray in Jesus' name. Father, would you create in us a clean heart? Jesus, renew a steadfast spirit in us. Father, do not cast us away. You promise that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. But, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, Father, that you teach us to delight ourselves in the Lord. To truly fear you, Father, not just to tremble before you, but to see the awesome wonder and the tremendous power and what you've done for us. And, Lord, that may that begin to melt us. May that move us to a place that whatever we're dealing with today, whether we're struggling to obey, that we might work out the truth of who you are into that aspect of life. And Holy Spirit, would you come in? Would you heal? Would you redeem? Would you restore all the brokenness and the pain? And whether that's even the loneliness, Father, we just surrender it to you. And maybe we haven't released to you our life. Maybe today our prayer needs to be, Father, I... I surrender my life to you, and I I ask, Father, accept me on the basis of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Forgive me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Father, show me the life that you've called me to. Lord, this morning, would you minister to us? Would we minister to each other? Would we seek prayer? Would we seek communion? Father, And in, in this last song, would we seek wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly your presence, Lord? Meet us here. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.